Hey, I'm Mike Joseph, and thank you for listening to Detoxicity, a show by men, about men, but for everyone. I hope you enjoy the content of this podcast, and I want to let you know about a few things you can do to support us and our mission to challenge traditional notions of masculinity and create a more communicative, positive, and loving environment for all. You can subscribe to Detoxicity on any podcast platform that you use to listen. We are available just about everywhere. Also, don't hesitate to rate and comment as these help us move up in the podcast rankings. I'm on social media, or at least I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok as Detox Pod Guy. Feel free to drop me a follow. Now I have a Patreon page, yay! And uh, Patreon gives you the opportunity to get cool merch and exclusive episodes of this podcast in exchange for subscribing. Go to patreon.com slash detoxicitypod to find out more. Uh, finally, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, whether you found an episode of the podcast particularly enjoyable or enlightening, or you know someone who'd be a great guest, or you'd like to offer constructive criticism, or if you yourself would like to be on the podcast, hit me up. Reach out to me at one of the aforementioned social media channels, or if you're old school like I am, drop me an email, detoxpod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and take care. My guest on this episode of Detoxicity is Larry Jaffe. Larry Jaffe is a journalist and a writer, and he has written a book entitled Record Store, the most improbable comeback of the 21st century. And y'all know that I'm a huge music head and a huge record collector, so this book speaks near and dear to my heart. But Larry's story goes way beyond music. Uh, we talk about him, his, his upbringing, growing up in New York City and on Long Island, and we talk about everything from busing, which is something that I didn't know even happened in New York City. Uh, we talk about marriage and divorce, and uh, we talk about Larry's sort of later in life uh, recognition of the fact that they are non-binary. Uh, so uh, check out Larry's story. I hope you enjoy it. It's a really great interview. Larry has a lot to say, and uh, so much to say that we couldn't fit everything that we wanted to say or that we wanted to talk about in this block of time that we had booked out. So we're going to have to do a part two at some point. Anyway, here is part one, hopefully of multiple parts, of the Larry Jaffe story. I'm Larry Jaffe. I'm 63, not 63. I'm going to be 65 in April. Congratulations. <laughs> Thanks. That's a milestone. Lately, I feel it, too. I like to think of myself as an industry thought leader in terms of the vinyl revival, which is something that I only sort of came to grips with about a decade ago that was not a fad and this was something I need to be part of and it makes me happy. I'm also a writer, a journalist, an educator. Last year I published a book about Record Store Day and I'm continuing to write you know, on a fairly regular basis about, about the business. Right on. And you have a long history in music and where did that start? A lot of my guests are creatives. A lot of my guests are musicians or music writers or whatever. Yeah. And there's always a point in their life when they're like, oh, music is my life. Where did that happen for you? So it happened in, I think it was like February 64 when the Beatles played at the Sullivan. I mean, you had to have been like three. No, I was, I was about to turn six. I was five. And prior to the Ed Sullivan show, we watched the Beatles on the news arrive at the airport. And I remember my father saying, this is a communist plot. <laughs> what? Yes, he actually said it. And at that point, I had no idea what a communist was or a beetle. But to see what kind of reaction he got out of him, I was like, I wanted to be there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even at five, I was a bit of a rebel. It's funny. My mother used to tell a story 
that first grade, every day she would send me to school, um, but I wouldn't answer. Like they called after three days. Why isn't your son going to school? And I was in school. So I said to her very matter of factly, they called Lawrence and I'm not Lawrence, I'm Larry. (laughs) (laughs) So I was already messing with the the system, I think. So to your question, my grandmother gave me a transistor radio for that next birthday a couple months later. And it opened the whole world for me. Because in those days in the 60s, top 40 radio really was fantastic. Because... Every single track was a great, great song. And sure, more than half of them probably were one-hit wonders, but it didn't make a difference. And I truly believe, probably 65 was the turning point, but I truly believe the 60s and first few years in the 70s was the best period of music. I mean, I'm sure a lot of, maybe that part of that is age. (laughs) Sure. But I, I just think track for track, and this hit me last week when Burt Bacharach passing away and thinking about how his music transcended genres and great black artists like Isaac Hayes, Dionne Warwick, Aretha Franklin just turned those songs into something entirely different than, oh, yeah. than the easy listening so- sound of it. At the core of it was just a great song. Right. Well, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, so I grew up in Queens. And we moved to the suburbs in Long Island. And it was an entirely different experience. I lived in Flushing. And it was a middle-class neighborhood. I would say largely Jewish, at least in my classrooms. But there was what they called the projects. And it wasn't even really projects. They were really two-family houses just mm-hmm. down the block, which was mostly a black neighborhood. And I remember this one kid came over one day, this must have been about 1965 or so, and said to me, what's the matter? You've never seen a Negro before? <laughs> and I said to him, we're here. No. I mean, I was just being honest. I wasn't right. afraid. And that's where it ended. I mean, he walked away, I guess, at that point. He was testing the waters too. It was really sure. a very interesting encounter. Now, soon thereafter, about two years later, this guy was, I wouldn't even call him a friend, but he lived in my apartment building. And we were walking home from school together, and he was fooling around with firecrackers. And he almost blew off his hand. And he made up this story that some black kids put these firecrackers in his hand. And oh, I was like, this is so wrong. And I told my parents, I said, that is not what happened. <laughs> so at that point, I was already realizing things about white privilege and... It really pissed me off. And also in 1968, a really interesting period in New York City was that the Board of Education started busing in kids into my school district and stuff. Oh, wow. I didn't realize. So I know, uh, obviously, there being civil unrest and riots in 68. And I know of busing, but not as a New York thing. So keep going. This is really interesting to me. And it actually was concurrent with... the the teachers going on strike. And I'm not really sure, and I should really research this, was there a connection to that? The teachers union objected to this plan. But for me, on my level, what was interesting is prior to this happening, the grades were all set up with like five classes within each grade. 
And I was always, I found out later, like the second smartest group of kids. Or sure. My mother must have found this out. So then when they started this experiment, they mixed up all the kids, except that first class. I guess they called them the gifted. I would sure. love to know if there were any African-American kids in that class. Um, huh. But I have really no way of knowing. So anyway, in 1969, I called the Great Exodus. <laughs> Half of my class literally moved to Long Island. Well, that's probably a circumstance of white flight. Right, exactly. Sure. In fact, I remember there was this one girl. We were in the same class, like from first grade to sixth grade. And when I was about 16, I was working in the supermarket and she worked in the supermarket nearby. And she worked for my boss a year or two before. So I remember calling her and I was saying, hey, it's me. Remember? <laughs> and it was funny. She thought it was just a strange conversation. She really didn't want to talk. <laughs> so, yeah, it was just very funny. But um, college opened up a whole new world for me. But even before that, I mean, this is interesting. Getting back to your music question. So my parents were both in the music industry oh. in the 50s. But they didn't pursue it. And part of it was just dumb sexism. My father was working in a warehouse for Columbia Records. My mother worked for a music publisher that discovered Johnny Mathis, actually, and would feed him songs and his first hits. Like, Chances Are, I think, was his first big hit. That came from my mother's boss. I was the publisher, at least, not the songwriter. So once I started really getting the music bug, I would say, how could you have given up those great jobs? <laughs> <laughs> and my father, he was just like caught a male chauvinist and said, no, your mom was going to be home taking care of the kids. And the funny thing is I found out later, my mother had just been put into a nursing home in 2015. And my father once took me to the train station and said, your mother was married before me. I was like, no, I did not know this. Wow. <laughs> Family secrets, man. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Apparently her first husband didn't want to have kids. They were married for less than a year or something okay. like that. And her father took it to Mexico to get the marriage annulled. And sure enough, when I cleaned out their house, I found the annulment papers. Wow. <laughs> so, wow. So, okay, questions are just popping into my head at all <laughs> random times. What was the biggest difference between your time in Queens and moving out to Long Island? So in Long Island, I'd introduce myself to these new kids in the sixth grade, and they would say, where are you from? And I said, Queens. And they would refer to it as the big city. <laughs> <laughs> and I had been in Manhattan a few times my lifetime. Went to Radio City with my family once, or the Museum of Natural History with my school. I mean, it wasn't like I was... In Manhattan, in the middle of everything. Right. The other thing that was really interesting, when I was a kid growing up, I liked sports, but the only sport I really gravitated to initially was baseball. And when I got to Long Island, everybody played basketball. Huh. So we had this basement out in Suffolk County, and I taught myself how to dribble. Like we had these poles holding up <laughs> the foundation. I would just dribble around. And I was a little awkward because I was a bit taller than most my age. So I, I became a serviceable 
basketball player. I was more defensive minded. As a kid, Phil Jackson was sort of my idol because he was all arms and everything. Right, like, very gangly. And I had like a hook shot like him, not like Kareem. But it was great growing up becoming a Knicks fan in those days. It was a really nicely integrated team and they had a great coach. I was also a huge Mets fan, a huge Jets fan. Joe Namath was my idol in those days. I mean, this was before I had music posters on the wall. Right. Right. So you were a sports guy, really, before you were a music guy. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I remember by the time I was probably about 14 or 15, I put up a Rolling Stones poster. I put up the four, in each corner of my room, I put the four Beatles from the White Album. The first record I bought was uh, introducing the Beatles in probably 1971. It was a cutout. And then the next year, I got like the Rolling Stones Hot Rocks. But the year before that, I remember it, when I first moved to that new school i somehow during lunch got placed with these nerdy kids <laughs> and one of them had a mini reel-to-reel tape recorder and i was like what's that i never saw anything like that and i was really intrigued by it so then i had birthday money that next april so night this would be 1970 and i went to try to buy that at like corvettes was a department store i guess that i went to and they didn't have anything like that but they had a cassette player so I bought a cassette player. And it was like the FBI style cassette players. Okay. Um, so it wasn't bought, a boombox. Um, and I wanted to buy one tape. And I bought Chuck Berry's London <laughs> Sessions, which the big hit was My Dang Lang. Right. <laughs> so, that song would be canceled today. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I firmly believe there would be no rock and roll without Chuck Berry. No, I mean, not at all. He invented the genre. I mean, yeah. It, yeah. Um, Keith Richards would admit that. Yeah, know. absolutely. All right. So at what point did your music obsession turn into, I want to work in music? Well, I had the idea when I was in high school, because I started writing for the high school newspaper. And I remember going to one of Rod Stewart and the Faces' last concerts and trying to talk my way backstage and stuff like that. It didn't work. <laughs> I actually printed a phony press pass. It was just ridiculous. Yeah. I don't even know how I printed it because in those days we didn't have computers. You didn't have printers. I don't even know how in the world I actually thought this was going to work. I think I typed a letter. At the same time when I was in high school, my favorite subjects were English and social studies. So I knew how to write. My mother, would, when she was trying to get me into college, she would type my papers and she thought I was a communist. <laughs> Here we go again with the communism stuff. I know. It was really funny. No, because I had a paper that was called Everything You Want to Know About the CIA, but was afraid to ask. Oh, shit. Yeah. I loved research. And then I saw all the president's men about Watergate. And I guess it put me on a career path. And I remember I tried to get a job at a record store. And I had bought records from this guy for months. I had bought a stereo from him. And I just figured, oh, he's just going to give me a job. And he's like, I don't have a job for you. <laughs> so I think had he let me have that job, maybe I would have stuck with the music thing. I don't know. Right, right. So, but once I got into college, again, I joined the newspaper. I wanted to join the radio station. But I was a commuter and I realized I couldn't do both. So because I liked writing, I stuck with that. Yeah. And did you major in journalism in college? I did, yeah. Okay. And I was a sociology major. It was funny, but on the newspaper, I was a music critic, and then I became the arts editor. And then in my junior year, I realized there's a whole new world out there that I should start writing about other stuff. 
And in fact, one of the professors at Hofstra was an advisor to the guerrillas in Zimbabwe. Um, oh, wow. He was a supporter of Joshua Nakomo and not Mugabe, who ended up becoming this dictator for like 30, 40 years. So that interview that I did for the school newspapers opened up the whole world. And then I had an eye infection or something like that. And I went to this local ophthalmologist who turned out to be African-American. And he asked me, what are you majoring in? So I said, journalism. So he said, have you heard of Stephen Biko? And I said, no. And he says, have you heard of Donald Woods? And I was like, no. I found out about apartheid and the South African struggle. And again, it just sort of opened up the whole world. Around that same time, I was heavily into reggae and Bob Marley. So I knew his songs in Bobwe, and I put two and two together. Together, right. Yeah. I mean, there's no Wikipedia. There's no internet back then. Exactly. uh, People were not as learned necessarily about things as you can be now. It's very easy to hear a song about a certain topic or read a news article and then dig deeper into that, you couldn't really do that back then. No, not at all. And also around the same time, in the cutout bin, you would find these amazing records. Gil Scott Heron's was the first moment of the new day. Yeah, first moment of the new day, that's right. And I got the the other one from South Carolina, South Africa. And both of those records just blew my mind. And I had the privilege of interviewing Gil years later. That's awesome. It's also kind of mind-blowing to imagine that stuff being in a cutout bin. Right. But, uh, times, yeah. And I mean, you would find amazing stuff. I remember buying Marvin Gaye's Hear My Dear, which was all about his divorce. That is one of my favorite albums of all time. <laughs> right. So, yeah. Mine's a, and I remember buying a triple record for St- of Stevie Wonder's best Motown stuff. It was more of the Barry Gordy years right. before it was like own stuff. Yeah. But every single song was amazing. Yeah. That's, it's crazy to think about these days. So tying a through line to the present where you're making vinyl, you're doing all this stuff, what brought you back into the industry doing what you do? So I had a job as editor of a magazine called Media Line, which covered the backroom stuff of Deviant CD production. So CDs were just about peaking at the point that I had this job. And those were the gravy years. Be like late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah, January 1998 was when I started that position. I put Lou Reed on the cover, who was always my hero. And I spent 25 years trying to interview him. And then it finally happened. (laughs) (laughs) It was like the closest I had to a full-time job in the music business was that job. But um, all good things came to an end. And I was laid off because I made too much money and I was on a hit list. I mean, there were about four other editors at sister magazines in this publishing company that were laid off before me. So I knew it was going to happen. I was stupid, though. I didn't really prepare for it. I should have been doing other media type stuff like radio, like they do in Britain. Most print journalists are doing radio shows and things. So I I didn't really see that coming. At the same time, it coincided with me realizing I was getting divorced, (laughs) which was kind of interesting. And at the time, I had two kids. My son was about 12 and my daughter was about nine. Um, And it was kind of a shock. What do I do? Do I reinvent myself? I mean, it hit me that life at 50 is much different than life at 30. Mm -hmm. I mean, I am 50 yet, so I can't say that definitively, but I assume that life is different at 50 than it is at 30. Life is different at 40 than it was at 30. That's exactly right. At 40, I would get these calls about from headhunters trying because I had a decent reputation as a 
really good trade magazine editor and we have these great jobs. And I had an internet job in the mid nineties and it was good for two years. But the interesting thing is I went back to print to do the media line thing because it was the closest to the record industry that I was going to get. So I sort of get to your question. I was in a new relationship that lasted three years and she talked me into selling my record collection. <laughs> Whoa. And I think it was early 2012. I was in Las Vegas at a convention that I had put it together as a consultant. And I was telling this friend of mine, and he said, you did what? <laughs> I mean, I'm still, I want to hear more about this because somebody convincing you to sell your record collection situation. Well, it was a moment of insanity. There's no other word for it. <laughs> But she was into Feng Shui and how you need to downsize and you can load all your CDs. I had 4,000 CDs at the time. So I actually ended up selling almost 4,000 LPs. I kept about 150 or so. I sold like 3,000 CDs. I kept about 1,000. Weirdly enough, I kept my cassettes. And in fact, I have my... That's awesome. Your Prince loves sexy cassette. I love it. I kept all the cassettes because nobody wanted them. And I couldn't just like throw them out. So yeah, I made some money on the records, but nothing what they're worth, obviously. One box was marked Do Not Touch and it just disappeared. It's like my first edition Roxy Music Records. Luckily, Country Life was not in that box. It was in the other one. (laughs) <laughs> I would have freaked <laughs> a lot of Beatles records were gone. I mean, it was there was stuff that I wish I kept. So I spent the last 12 years recreating my collection. Right. <laughs> so, so, and I've done a great job at it, I have to say. And it's also this rebirth of it enabled me to get more heavily into jazz and blues that I did not have previously. And I was always sort of intimidated by jazz in particular. I always was really good on soul and R&B. You know, Green, right. Curtis Mayfield, those types of artists. This was probably freshman year in college. I just would go into used record stores and buy as many two, three dollar records like that. Isaac Hayes. And I, I knew I'd love this stuff. This was my favorite music. And also, it's not only male artists, Diana Ross and the Supremes. I just am a sucker for a great hook. And thing enough, what bothered me about disco was not so much the music as it was the clothes. The <laughs> this, I didn't understand it. You never owned a leisure suit, Larry? <laughs> no. I did have some weird orange pants once and a platform, orange platform shoes. And my roommate got us fake IDs and we went to a disco once. And I think what happened was I didn't like the Saturday Night Fever movie. I liked the story. I didn't, I didn't like the music that much. Okay. I hated the Bee Gees in that, the music I'm talking about. Sure. The early Bee Gees I thought was fantastic. Got to get a message to you, run to me. Right. Those are great. I mean, yeah. celebrate the Bee Gees through all their incarnations. <laughs> but on the other hand, there were certain disco artists like Chic and Donna Summer and Sylvester that I loved from the moment I heard them. Right. Especially Sylvester. I mean, that voice was just like... Wow. Yeah, I mean, Sylvester is, is fantastic. So you are a, a divorcee. Yeah. So were you one of those people who got married right out of college? No, and... I waited a long time. And in fact, we didn't start dating until I was about 27. Okay. And we were dating for three years and then we lived together for three years. 
We waited. I mean, we didn't get married until I was 35. And her birthday was like a week after mine. So it was like a 19-year total relationship. Which um, is a long, yeah, long it was relationship. A long yeah. yeah. And it was interesting. I mean, we had so much in common initially. She had a great record collection. She worked at a record store when she was in high school. <laughs> she worked at the radio station. She had Bob Dylan's biograph in her collection. I was like, wow. I have never met a woman who was interested in Bob Dylan before. One thing, and this is slightly, very slightly off topic, or slightly off the track that we're about to go on. Record collecting and music criticism is so strangely male. And I'm not sure why. I try to think of female music nerds or even non-binary music nerds. And it feels like such a, a guy thing. And in a lot of cases, a straight guy thing. My friend Annie Zaleski is really one of the only woman, like super duper music nerds that I can think of. Or somebody like Carrie. Do you have any thoughts on why record collecting and kind of like music nerdery is such a male dominated thing? Yeah, I've researched this when I was putting together my book. A friend of mine, Colin King, is a, an academic in England, and she traces it back to the 50s. We met on the internet, and I came across a paper she had put out about this very subject. So I wanted to find out more, and we became fast friends. So in the 40s and 50s, after the war, first audiophiles sort of emerged. And they would send the wives to buy the furniture consoles to make sure the wood was the right thing for the <laughs> living room. <laughs> but as far as picking the music, that was the men's domain. Yeah. And which is ridiculous. It's sexist. I mean, it's just, super yeah. sexist. Yeah. And that really continued through the 70s. Although I, I was thinking about this the other day. In the 60s, I had a friend who's older sister was the biggest monkeys fan i mean her bedroom was like a shrine to the monkeys not the beatles and of course she had all the records so i mean girls were buying records as well i mean girls and women have always been huge music fans but then when you go into the critical space or yeah. the academic space or the collecting space as well i go to record shows and and the percentage of men to it's like nine to one eight to one i, I see it changing and okay. in fact i was talking to gina williams from warner yesterday i love she gina and I are doing a podcast on wednesday oh nice for larry miller who teaches at nyu oh that's awesome and also doing a panel on friday there the most current research by russ krupnik of music watch found that about half of music purchases are female-identifying individuals. And somebody who considers myself non-binary, right. it's great that they would put it in that context. It'd be great if they have a category for non-binary. But soon soon happening. Yeah. So it's really interesting to me, particularly over the past 10 or 15 years, as the internet has taken hold, and I feel like the critical discourse has advertised a little bit, you are seeing more non-male voices, more non-white voices, more non-straight voices entering the conversation. And I could do a whole, I could have a whole conversation about how that fucks a lot of these straight white guy critic types up. It throws them way off their game. And that's kind of funny. Yeah. You know, but also me personally, I can't really talk for the male gender. I don't want to, but, but I always loved female artists, especially in the seventies, Patti Smith, 
Debbie Harry, Stevie Nicks. These were just amazing voices. And I think at that point, I already had pretty much considered myself a feminist. Right. Now, that's not to say, getting back to my high school years, that I didn't have moments of sexism. Like, we for all example, do. No, in addition to baseball, I did like to play tennis. But in my ulterior motive to meet girls, essentially. <laughs> so they had, and this was actually kind of progressive of them at the time, they allowed the girls to challenge and be on the male team on any given week during the practice sessions. Sure. So one day, I guess, I was the third singles. And I was totally self-taught. Yeah, I, I played a decent tennis game. It wasn't great. But I could win half my matches easily at that level. And one day, I just was thinking about something else, and she beat me. But not by a lot, but she beat me. And I lost. I had to, like, face that I wasn't playing that next week, whatever school we were playing. And I don't remember getting razzed by it. It was more of a personal thing. So then I had the opportunity to challenge match, get back my spot. And every single ball, I smashed at her feet. She did not have <laughs> one moment to like hit the, I beat her six love, six love. And afterwards I realized what I did and I apologized for it. It was a moment of awakening, I think. Right. Like I wasn't proud of myself that moment. I mean, we all, uh, I guess I can't speak for everybody. I'll speak for me and you here is that we do things that we're not proud of and hopefully we learn from them and become better as a result of it. But none of us came in this world perfect. We all have stuff that we've been taught or the stuff that we've internalized and hopefully we learn and we get better. And it sounds like that was a learning experience for you. Yeah, absolutely. So your journey, starting with the divorce in some ways, you've gone through a lot in the last 10, 15 years as you've aged and you do identify as non-binary now. And I'm just curious what that journey was like. So, what steps happened? I think what happened was I had repressed loads of stuff going back to adolescence that I just didn't really deal with. Or I always looked at life a little differently than my peers, I realized. For example, in high school, I would go to the public library and look at books by Andy Warhol. Because I wasn't getting that from my parents. So my mother's idea of art would be like the dogs playing poker. <laughs> <laughs> so when Bowie did Ziggy Stardust, I didn't know about that. Okay. But around 74, 73, I bought a cutout of The Man Who Sold the World, which is the most amazing goth record. And the lyrics are very sexual and... Very, I mean, it sounds, a lot of the stuff that he put into Ziggy started there. Right. And musically, it was much more adventurous. I, I think it's probably my favorite Bowie record. Okay. Uh, but it didn't sell anything. There was no hit off of it. But when he came out with Rebel Rebel, now that was all about sexual confusion. Not so much about the individual. It was about how the rest of the world perceived it. Sure. It was about somebody being non-conforming. And that I could relate to then, but I didn't act on it. Although I was managing a band, getting back to my history about in the business, I, I was in a garage band, but as the vocalist, I didn't really learn how to play guitar. So I was the vocalist and I wanted to be Mick Jagger, basically. But then I ended up becoming manager of other rock bands in high schools. Like I was the individual at the high school to pick the band for the dance that they were having. Okay. I, I would do audition bands. And one of these bands I really liked and we became friends. 
And they would invite me to do guest vocals on Aerosmith songs. And Cracked Actor was one of the Bowie songs. I remember going to one of those gigs and I had this long scarf. And I must have stole my mother's lipstick or something like that. And that was the only makeup. And she immediately thought I was gay or something like that. Right. Right. I, yes, that is the conclusion that someone from that generation would draw. Right. So she had also sent me to a psychiatrist. And this was interesting. I was supposed to go to Mexico in my Spanish class. And they sort of like held it as a ransom type, not ransom, but basically it was a quid pro quo. You'll go to Mexico if you go to see this. For a psychiatrist. Right. Wow. And I was so pissed off, but at the same time, I still wanted to go to Mexico. So I, I went, but I refused to talk to the shrink. I mean, I was incensed that she drew the conclusion that I was gay because I was never attracted to men. I'm still not attracted to men. I've had gay friends all along, male friends, gay women friends. That's not the issue. We meet on a different cerebral level in sure. terms of common interests and things. So anyway, the weird thing, nothing ever was ever said about that again in my, in my mother's lifetime and me. But getting back to your question, how did the journey begin? It was at my father's funeral. When my first cousin says to me, I never realized how much you looked like your your mother. And I said to myself, I, you don't know the half. I almost blurred out. You don't know the half of it. <laughs> <laughs> and part of that was I once gone to one of these makeover places. And uh, so I was made up, I wouldn't say in drag, but just, and I looked just like this cousin who was telling me this. That's what oh, I meant wow. by you don't know that. Right, right. <laughs> and I was so horrified that I looked like her. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember they wanted to give me like a Polaroid. And I was like, no, that's okay. No, no thanks. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, it's forever embedded in my brain. That's enough. Right. But at the same time, I was always a kind of intrigued by the whole experience. So that's why I meant that it was sort of like in the back of my mind. So then after my cousin said that to me, I had a deal with my father's estate and I had to sort out all of his affairs and clean out the house. My brother was of no use. But I said, as soon as this house gets old, I'm going to come to grips with it. And when the divorce was going on, a friend of mine couldn't understand why the divorce was taking so long and said, you seem to be blocked. Like you're not enjoying this freedom that you have. Which I don't know if that was necessarily true. I mean, not that I was sexually adventurous. I did have a bunch of relationships and not short-term stuff. Experiences. Yeah, one-night stands and things like that. So he sent me to his psychiatrist. And the first thing the guy said to me was, well, you don't seem to be depressed. So I'm not going to prescribe you any medication. (laughs) Which I thought was a kind of bizarre thing because he only talked to me for maybe a minute by that point. Yeah. So then he lost his license, I found out, like a year or two later, because he was rolling out the drugs. So then it wasn't until this third time around when I said, well, I need to give therapy a bit of a chance here and find out, well, am I really happy? What will make things better? What's my true identity? So I had really researched it. And I, I actually had a complete open mind about it. And I said to myself, well, maybe I'm trans. Maybe I don't know it. And then, so I immersed myself in a support group. And a, a week later, after I was in the support group, I found a therapist 
who was a trans woman, in fact. I figured, what? I might as well just jump in the deep end. <laughs> so, wow. But anybody would know, she would know. Right. Know. I would have to imagine that was difficult that, to search that for. That was a really great experience. And she gave me this great assignment, basically map out any times that you thought you might have some sort of gender nonconforming notions. And I did. And most of it was music related. So. Like hearing Walk on the Wild Side for the first time or Rebel Rebel or seeing Sylvester perform, in fact. Sure. It was stuff like that that just put it all in perspective. Four decades of this, like you know, figuring that out. Right. And so I think about six months into therapy, she said, look, I'm not going to tell you you're trans. This is all you internally. So I said, well, I'm fairly certain I'm non-binary. And I, now one of the things I found when I cleaned out the house was a letter from my mother to my grandmother that she must have written in the 60s. And in it, she makes reference to have taken DES, which was a fertility drug. Okay. And I had heard of DES. So there's a thing called the DES daughters. And these are women who had like high incidences of all kinds of reproductive cancers and things. But also there was a whole thing called DES sons. And there's one doctor who has a very large transgender clientele who was convinced that DES was a large reason why that would show up in also high instances of gay proclivities or trans or or non-binary. So a friend of mine is actually a patient of his. He's in Michigan, the doctor. And I've been too busy to contact him and say, well, I might have some information for you. But interesting enough, when I also cleaned out of the house, I also found suicide notes from my father when he was turning 40. He had a business that had just failed. And so a note to me, to my brother and to my mother. Oh, wow. That's um, got to be hard to uncover. Yeah, and my mother had dementia. So we, that was one of the reasons I moved back to help them because both mm-hmm. of their health was failing. And I, I realized my father really needed my help dealing with it, helping with all that. So I talked to the therapist that was helping us with the dementia issues. And I said, is this something to be concerned about? And she said, well, yeah, but it was so long ago. And he doesn't really exhibit those signs now. So let's just leave it alone. And I thought that was probably the right advice. Right. And I never consulted and asked them about it. It was interesting. So after my mother went to the nursing home, I'd learned certain things about my father, like when he was in the army. And I mean, before I discovered I was non-binary, I used to say it's like a 21st century version of Stanford and Son. The conversations that we would have was like very generational, you know? I hope he never called you a big dummy. No, no, <laughs> No, but we had quite a few arguments about politics, all kinds of stuff. Sure. But he told me the story about when he was in the army, there were these rednecks who were picking on this guy who everyone perceived was gay. And my father basically butted into the situation. He was like 21 years old at the time, maybe. Mm-hmm. And said, just leave him alone. And I was really proud of him. And I thought that was really cool. Now, on my mother hand, she turned out to be a complete transphobic, homophobic. And... I mean, at one point, I thought about maybe trying to talk to my father about some of the stuff that I was dealing with. But at the same time, he was facing his own mortality. Sure. And I just didn't want to burden him with anything that I was thinking about. 
Because right. he always looked at me as, I mean, I guess he was a little upset when I, I, I got divorced, but he always looked at me as the stable one. And it's funny, when I told you about the relationship of the woman who talked me into selling the record collection, my father hated her. <laughs> so did everybody else. <laughs> I mean, it must have been just a pure sex. I don't know. There could be a whole scientific study done on why people enter into relationships despite everybody that they love not being a fan of this person. Right, right. So, so, the, the next relationship I had, and I was very selective by that point. I was gun shy and I just wasn't jumping in. Didn't come through social media. It just came through natural. And that was a pretty good relationship for three years, although it came to a head. And it wasn't all on me. I mean, she came with some baggage too, but we're still the best of friends and we talk several times a week. But for whatever reason, it just didn't get to that next. And I was very open with her when I went into therapy and to what I was dealing with. And, and because she had been in therapy for a long time, she thought it was a great thing, actually. Awesome. So going to the present day, how are you kind of handling all of that stuff now? Or have you kind of come to a place where you like who and what you are? Well, it's funny. Health insurance changed in beginning of November. And then I had to cut back because I lost a job. The place where I was teaching for 10 years killed my department. So I was hurting financially. I mean, I'm not getting rich off of making final. <laughs> so I basically said, well, I'm going to give two things that break therapy and acupuncture for a couple of months. And I actually just found out that acupuncture was free all along. And I didn't know oh, wow. That. But the therapy, I still didn't be having and to pay at least $60 out pocket, maybe more. So I just started again with a new psychologist two weeks ago, and I'm going again this week for the second meeting. And I liked him. He was really good. Good. So yeah. So it's like starting almost a new relationship and he's local. Whereas the other one was and this awakening for me occurred during the pandemic. So that was the cat. Also, it was a perfect storm of stuff. Like I also realized in those two years prior that more than 80% of my students were women. It just never occurred to me before. So I think there was a lot of that influence happening. Oh, when you have time to sit with yourself, and I think the pandemic for a lot of people did this, you come to a lot of realizations when you can't distract yourself, right? You can't go out and do shit. So you're sitting with your thoughts. And exactly. I think a lot of people have ways of running away from their feelings and their thoughts and not being able to sit with them pandemic for a lot of people was really uncomfortable because you couldn't run away from shit. Your stuff was right there. So yeah. kudos to you for figuring out ways to deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's always interesting to me to talk to people who have differences in assigned gender versus the gender that they feel that they are, whether they're non-binary or questioning or outright trans, just because I've always felt like a guy. And despite the fact that there is a whole ETQIA plus identity or everything's kind of lumped there, Gender and sexuality are two very, 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 very different things. Absolutely. Uh, and I had to explain this to a relative over the holidays. Just because you're trans doesn't mean that you're gay. And th she's actually younger than you, this relative. So it's not totally a generational thing, but there's still so much education that needs to be done. And also for you being in the vinyl community, part of the record making community, I mean, I'm a part of that community too. And as I said earlier, it is still, I'm trying to put this nicely. People who are not white or straight or male are the minority. So whether it's 
any kind of black and brown person, any kind of non-heterosexuality, any non-male gender, any non-cis male gender, I should add. It's a minority. So you, just by existing, are doing a lot of educating people. Yeah, I try. But I think I have this situation that I'm not taking seriously when I bring it up. I mean, I came out to about 50 or 60 close friends. And for the most part, they all accepted it pretty much. But in one business meeting with an association that said that they opened themselves to non-binary. And I said, well, I thought that was great you know, because somebody is non-binary. And I don't think they really accepted it. And you know, it was like they didn't hear what I was saying. So is it because I'm just basically perceived as male? So that's what I'm ever, always going to be. Do I have to dress flamboyantly for them to take it seriously? And that, I mean, that's the other thing I realized during this process. Not into makeup. I'm not into jewelry. I want to dress comfortably. Maybe one day I will feel like I want to wear a dress. So then maybe that will open up their eyes. It really sucks. It sucks, Larry. And I go through this a lot as a queer man. If you don't conform to a stereotype that people have in their heads, you're sort of dismissed. What you are is not what people see you as necessarily. Yeah. Do I have to look like Sylvester in order to be taken seriously as a queer guy? Do you have to wear makeup or wear stereotypically feminine clothing to be seen as non-binary? And the thing is, it's neither male nor female. So you can present any, I mean, anybody can present any kind of way that they want, but you can present any way that you want. You are what you say you are. Right. Uh, but I do think just based on my stupid armchair psychology that people still view you as a guy and that's why they're having trouble making that connection yeah and the, and the other thing that's kind of interesting is pronouns because i'm not comfortable with they them and one of my non-binary friends really has a problem they don't understand why i haven't just embraced that and it's because i i just want to be known as larry that's fine or lj would do fine like initials i'm okay with jaffe even is okay and this is how i realized i had a problem with being perceived as amab anytime anyone would call me mr or sir it would just internally i bristle and in my mind mr jaffe died with my father right my brother certainly welcome to be called that my son if he wants it but I don't want it. <laughs> it's an education and, process. Yeah. And I think Me Too had a lot to do with it as well. Right. I, like in terms of women getting raw deal all these years and, and I'm on their side. Right. 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 Well, progress, however incremental, is still progress. So we're going to get where we need to get. So much appreciation to Larry for being open and honest and sharing their story with us. And like I said, there is more to come. Uh, There are a few episodes out there where I was like, oh, wow, we barely scratched the surface in the time that we got to talk. This was one of them. So I hope that uh, Larry feels comfortable coming back and we'll do another part at some point. If you want to know more about Larry Jaffe, you can go to LarryJaffe.com. You can contact him at Larry at MakingVinyl.com or you can just go to MakingVinyl.com. And uh, there is a a Making Vinyl conference happening uh, this uh, spring in June. I will be speaking at that. It's happening in Minneapolis. So uh, actually, I believe it is on June 7th. Uh, So it will be Prince's birthday as well. So that's a big deal. And uh, again, if you want to know more, go to makingvinyl.com or larryjaffe.com. Thanks again, Larry, for joining us.
Thank you for listening to Detoxicity. I hope you found this particular episode interesting. And if you are new, I hope you go back and listen to all of the older episodes. Uh, once again, my name is Mike Joseph. I am the host and producer of this show. And uh, there are a lot of things that you can do to continue to support our mission, continue to support this podcast. Uh, follow me on social media. I am on Instagram, Twitter, and I'm on TikTok as Detox Pod Guy. Uh, you can also send me an email if you'd like. I'm at detoxpod at gmail.com. I am always on the hunt for people with interesting, inspirational, and powerful stories. So if you know somebody who fits that bill or if you yourself fit that bill, please don't hesitate to drop me a line via email or via social media. Uh, please make sure you subscribe on your podcast platform that you're listening to this on. Uh, rate, comment, help a brother out, uh, help us move up in the rankings, uh, follow me on social media, like I said, uh, follow our Patreon, or subscribe to my Patreon, actually, patreon.com slash detoxicitypod, you get access to exclusive episodes, you get episodes a little earlier than the general public, you get a cool-ass sticker, lots of stuff, once again, patreon.com slash detoxicitypod, quick shout out to Calvin Williams for providing the music, and, uh, doing his magic on the logo which was originally designed by jacob block i thank you all for listening i wish you all the best please take care of each other till next time peace